ready, Bernie? You know it. All right, let's do it. Welcome, everyone, to Wolverheme Happy Hour. I'm Anthony Personati. And I'm Bernie Marini. We are hematology clinical pharmacists, and this is a podcast where we drink and we nerd out about data. Welcome back, everyone, to Wolverheme Happy Hour. Bernie, you brought us a friend. I did. I did. We are lucky to have Jill Lichen with us today uh, from the University of Miami. Uh, she's a HEMOC clinical pharmacy coordinator there. Uh, just a brief introduction of Jill. We're happy to have her on as a guest. She did her PharmD at Temple University and then her PGY1 at Einstein Healthcare and then her PGY2 at Moffitt. And we are lucky to have you on the podcast, Jill. Welcome. Thank you, guys. I'm a huge fan of this podcast. I tell all my friends, all my fellows to listen to it. It's such a good podcast. So thank you for putting this together. You're too nice. You're very, <laughs> very, very nice. Thank you for that. Bert, well, first of all, Bernie, how do you guys know each other? Uh, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> like, how think, did you like? How did this happen? How is she here right now? It's, clearly, you must have talked. <laughs> I think we met on Twitter, actually. Yeah. And then oh. I gave a talk in Miami. Yeah. And then, but did I meet you at Ash before the talk? Probably. Probably. I think that was it. And then he came to Miami and he did a great job on his talk. Oh, nice. Beautiful. Well, um, it's a pleasure to, to meet you and, and I'm happy that you're on the podcast. Uh, so what do you do now? You're, you're a clinical pharmacist specialist in leukemia at Moffitt um, or are you hematology? I do, I, I guess it's hematology, but I do eight months out of the year on the leukemia inpatient service. Okay. And four months out of the year on lymphoma myeloma inpatient service. Got it. Okay. So I so. it up a little bit. Ah, yep. That's a cool yeah. split. Yeah. And mostly used to accommodate like the PGY2 residents because we want them to have the experience with my partner, Wenfi, who is amazing, um, mm -hmm. and myself. We want them to get both experiences in two different precepting styles. So that's why we split it like that. Wonderful. Well, as you know, Jill, uh, we drink on our podcast, so I hope that you brought something to drink. I did. I did. What do you got? Okay. So it's a little uh, homage to my home. Ooh. I have a order. It's a Yingling Hershey because I'm originally from Pennsylvania. Oh, so, and nice. I and I was going to have you guys decide for me which one I should use. So I have the, oh, it's not really the bird gang koozie because go Eagles are in the playoffs. <laughs> and then I have a, there's a pill for that. And I feel like this one's kind of more fitting for today's talk. Oh yeah. hundred percent. Yeah. Go with that probably. one. There's probably. a pill for that. Yeah. Perfect. So is that, is that thing chocolatey or what? Since it's Hershey's. Mm -hmm. Ooh. It's chocolate. chocolate so the bottle order. is really, yeah. The bottle's really good in a pinch, um, but the draft is phenomenal. Nice. That's Are you my from kind of Hershey, beer. Pennsylvania? No, I no. wish. I'm from Bucks County. It's like the burbs of Philly. Oh, cool. Jilly nice. from Philly is Jilly my Jilly from Philly. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. Bernie, what are you drinking? Uh, so I, this past weekend, was in Grand Rapids for my daughter's hockey. Of course, mm -hmm. that's all I do. Yep. Uh, and I have a Founders Kentucky Breakfast Stout maple mackinac fudge the special Ooh. edition that you can only get in the stores up at founders in grand rapids so that is intense it yeah wow it's 11 percent. it's barrel aged it's chocolatey it's got a little hint of maple syrup it's delicious mm. uh, sounds sounds it warms up my canadian heart to hear uh maple syrup oh yeah and <laughs> hockey right and, and hockey, yeah. <laughs> is this better than your Vixios Porter that you have? Oh, oh my God. The Vixios Porter is so bad. <laughs> it's, uh, it's, hey, it's getting better with age. Oh, no, yeah. it, it tastes like sewage water. Okay. It's, <laughs> it it too. It, it's a means to an end. Uh, so you guys know I'm a wine guy. Love my wine. So I'm drinking an Amarone della Vapolicella. So it's a beautiful... Uh, wine from northern Italy, where my my grandparents are from, the Veneto region, and mm -hmm. um, it's a it's a bold bold wine. Um, you know, generally it's like a sixteen percent wine, but you don't taste the alcohol because there's just so much body to it. Because uh, what they do is they actually instead of just like squishing the grapes, they lay them out and dry them so they get sort of raisiny and get nice and concentrated, and then they squish them, mm -hmm. and it's just phenomenal. 
Really good. Wow. Highly, highly recommended if you guys, if anybody likes big, bold wines, Amarones. Is it as, is it as good as your your dad's Papa Persinati Dino's wine? <laughs> well, I my dad know. doesn't listen to our podcast, so I'm going to say straight up, absolutely not. <laughs> uh, my, dad's, my dad's wine is not very good at all, unfortunately. <laughs> it comes from the heart, though. <laughs> Anyways, guys, all right. So uh, we brought Jill on for a reason, right, Bernie? What's the agenda? Yeah, so today... We are going to talk a little bit about IDH inhibitors, particularly in the relapse refractory setting. Uh, and Jill, we're talking about a new drug. So why don't you start us start us off? Tell us about this new agent. How do okay. we pronounce it? Yeah. yeah what is this? So, what is the name? Um, well, the generic name is alutacidinib or alutacidinib. I don't know how. Here's what we need to figure out here is, so, well, one, we're not going to say the whole entire word uh, the whole time. So we need to form a nickname. Oh, it's Aluda. Aluda. So, uh, no, 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 hold on. Not Aluda. I was thinking this should be Olu. And the reason why, so Olu (laughs) is just, like, when I think of Olu, I think of, like, Frozen, right? Like, like Olaf, Olaf and Olu. And I just pictured this big fat snowman named Olu, and and that I I I mean that's how they should market this thing, this like big snowman? fat snowman named Olu instead of that CML uh, rabbit, that scary that, that, rabbit. It's terrifying. Yeah. You need this happy fat snowman. <laughs> the okay? Donnie Darko. Oh my God! Rabbit. Look at that! You've it's got Olaf. Olaf right there. <laughs> I know oh. this is my dog's toy. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. See. Uh, it's Olu. We're calling it Olu for the rest of the podcast. I guess if it's Olu, then it could be Olu and Ivo, right? Like, oh, yeah. like twins. There you go. I don't know. Yeah. All right. I like it. I mean, if you guys want to call it Olu. I'm calling it Olu. <laughs> All right. The brand name's Res Lydia. Um, Lydia. Lydia. I know. It sounds like a, like a grandma's name. Mm-hmm. <laughs> or our counterpart, but... Lydia. <laughs> All right. So Olu. Olu, Olu. it is. Um, so it got approved recently, right before ASH, um, but really not really talked about that much mm-hmm. at ASH. Um, mm-hmm. got approved December 1st, 2022, and it's approved as monotherapy in the relapse refractory setting in patients with an IDH1 mutation. So let's talk a little bit about relapse refractory uh, AML for elderly patients, because, you know, in our prior podcast, we talked about frontline elderly AML, especially as it relates to IDH. Um well, first of all, Jill, let's say you got a 74-year-old individual that comes in and uh, they have AML. Um, so a UM or standard care in the relapse refractory setting, um, it kind of depends on what they got before. So uh-huh. if it's after intensive chemotherapy, it's going to be a Venaza-based therapy, yep. most likely. Um, and then if they... Uh, have already experienced Venaza, then we're looking more for uh, targeted therapy. Yep. Okay. So, so I, I guess uh, I'll also paraphrase based off of that. A frontline patient, you're using HMA Ven then. As a 74 year old, yeah. Yeah. Yep. Okay. Yeah. So H- HMA Ven for frontline, which we do as well. We don't use IVO plus uh, HMA. Um, and then when they relapse, you're gonna try to pray to God that they have either an IDH one or two mutation or a FLT3 mutation, and then we'd use either GILT or IVO or, or ENA. Uh, what if they have no targetable mutation? Uh, Bernie, what, what would you do for a patient that has no targetable mutation? Well, there's not a lot of great options, and, no. and there's certainly not a lot of good data. Uh, back in the day, we used to mm-hmm. fool around with clofarabine, but we quickly realized that was a terrible idea. Yep. Um, well, that, that just shows like yeah. how you should not be influenced by single center. I'm not going to call two. it any names, uh, <laughs> data because you'll get completely bamboozled. I remember clofarabine was like the, the golden drug. Yep, yeah. That was going to cure everybody's AML and it, 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 it died. Then they studied it in Spain and there was like a 30% <laughs> mortality rate and that was yep. abandoned. So no, but we don't, up. what's that? You're talking about clofarabine at the higher doses. Yeah, yeah, or even uh, even in the, I think in one of the European studies, they used sort 20. of in the 20 to 30 milligrams per meter square range, and it was still just super toxic. So we we at U of M, if people have failed HMA Ven, we do the same thing that you do. You know, we mm-hmm. we hope and, and, you know, wish for a targeted mutation that we can give, you know, maybe an IDH inhibitor or 
you know, maybe a FLIP3 inhibitor, but really our options are limited. And so patients without those mutations, we're generally giving FLAG. Mm -hmm. And I know a lot of people are afraid of hydrocyterabine, but when you're giving it at FLAG doses without the anthracycline, it's really well tolerated up to the patients, even in their 80s, that are that are relatively fit patients. So that's, that's our standard mm -hmm. for people who aren't candidates for target therapy. But this isn't like in any guidelines or anything. It's not cool mm -hmm. to talk about. So clearly very limited options. So I think, um, you know, obviously our IDH inhibitors are very important. Um, so I think that's this is why we want to talk about OLU. Um, is, it, uh, is it going to be our new IDH1 inhibitor uh, that we should be using uniformly in all of these IDH uh, relapsed uh, older patients? Or should we stick with the standard, which is ibocitinib right now? So Jill, you're going to help us decide tonight okay. over drinks. <laughs> yes, I love this. All right, so to get to kind of get started, there's really um, one main study that got approved, um, OLU got approved off of, and that was the phase two study um, looking at Oluda or OLU. By, <laughs> um, it's going to be hard to make that. You can just Olu, say the other one. <laughs> OLU or Oluda by itself um, in the relapse refractory setting. And so this was published most recently at ASH 2022 as a poster. Um, and so if you went to the poster, you kind of got all the details. Um, if not, you have to wait for the paper that's been accepted to blood advances that hasn't been published yet. Ooh, How do you know this information? You clearly info. have insider trading info here. I don't have insider. This is common knowledge. <laughs> what? Where the hell have I been? So uh, do you, did you guys uh, did you did you guys participate in this study? We did. Well, so okay. one of our um, uh, physicians is on the phase one. Uh, to trial. Ah, so that's how you know. It's not common knowledge. They're the, they're the first <laughs> institution listed in the phase one, too. Yeah. Wow. And then, okay, it's all adding other... up here. Now I know why you brought her here, Bernie. Yeah. <laughs> She's the uh, expert. And then our other, um, they're also studying Oluda in the glioma section. And one of our neuro-oncologists just published this year, like within the last couple of weeks, on um, Oludocytinib and gliomas. So... Mm. Because uh, they are IDH1 mutated, solid uh -huh. things that would or solid stuff that we don't really talk about that much. Mm -hmm. All right, so let's let's kind of walk through this drug itself. So mechanism of action, we already talked about what an IDH inhibitor does. Any different than ivocitinib? It's the same thing. Like its whole process is to inhibit IDH1 and bring down um, 2HG. That is its main mechanism of action. The difference in that it has a different binding site on IDH1 than mm. ibocytinib does. And and it does bind two to one um, to the IDH site, whereas IBO only binds one to one. Now, does that mean that Aluda is more potent? No, we don't know that for sure. Right. It's a completely different binding mechanism. Um, but they, they, work, they do work a little bit different. They are a different molecular structure. Got it, okay. Yeah, there's some there's some good reviews out there. We can uh, link in the show notes of some structure activity relationship studies that are mm -hmm. pretty in depth, but go through, you know, some of the different IDH inhibitor types. Um, but if anybody wants a good review of me the mechanism of these drugs and just a baseline overview of IDH inhibitors, um, we'll point you to episode five mm -hmm. for our discussion with Charlie about the Agile study. So that was the... a great background on that. <laughs> Thank you. It took us a lot of studying of our, our basic biology. Um, but yeah, so that that's the mechanism. Let, let's kind of like walk through here of like the nitty gritty things that nobody but probably pharmacists care about but are super important facts. Um, and let's, let's kind of walk through and compare and contrast Ivo versus Olu. And um, maybe we can assign points of, well, this one might be better here. Or this one might be better here. So uh, I guess the the dosing, uh, how is this dosed? Uh, so in the dose finding study that was published um, in the phase one, they looked at three different dosing levels and they ultimately decided on 150 milligrams twice a day. Um, and that was based off of the change in the 2HG levels 
not the max tolerated dose. So there was no dose limiting toxicities in any of these groups, which is very similar to how IVO was studied. One thing I don't understand is the half-life of this drug is, what, 50 to 70 hours? Why the hell does it need to be a BID drug? I I don't understand. So I'm going to minus one point here to Olu. Because IVO is a once a day, and and it's as silly as this sounds, this is what we're going. This is how we're going to decide when we don't have comparative data to say one's better than the other. We're going to decide because this is much easier for patients to take once a day. Adherence is incredibly important. Uh, it's a lot. Hard, it's a lot easier to miss a twice a day medication than it is a once a day. So, um, and empty stomach. Sorry, Olu. And empty stomach. I like to I snack mean, all empty... day. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think right, the empty maybe... stomach is the biggest one for me yeah. because. <laughs> I mean, they look, so the absorption is increased, of course, when you eat it with a meal. And so that's why they say empty stomach and you start hitting those side effects that you don't see mm-hmm. when you have it on an empty stomach, such as the QTC prolongation. Mm-hmm. So if we're saying that like Aluda's kind of could be an option because you avoid QTC prolongation where you do see that in ivocidinib, you have to be very conscious that it's only if you take it on an empty stomach. Okay. Got it. Okay. Well, you just mentioned something that I'm going to give a point to Olu, <laughs> QT prolongation. There is no uh, no totally. increase in QT at at regular dosing without eating a, a big meal, right? So exactly. Olu, no QT prolongation. Ivo does have protein, yeah. uh, QT prolongation. It's probably, what, like 10-ish percent? Who the hell knows if it's clinically significant? But guys, we're, we're nitpicking here. Minus one point for, for Ivo. Now we're, we're, we're back on the even playing field here. I mean, it it comes into it definitely comes into thought when you have a patient and you're looking at their med list and they're like, say they have any psych- yeah. psychiatric background. Yep. Um, yeah. and they're on other medications. Like you're not going to be wanting to bring them in weekly for EKG checks in the first couple of weeks while they're on therapy. That's such a good point. And when you think about it with pathways, a lot of pathways, um, you know, whether you're Elsevier, Via, whatever the hell pathway you're using, a lot of pathways choose their drugs because it doesn't have extra monitoring. Well, if you have to if you have to monitor your EKG multiple times, now that's cost added, that's visits that patients don't need. That's a big no-no. So, like I said, minus 1 point to to Ivo. Uh CNS penetration, you mentioned gliomas. Um this one I I know Bernie's going to have some fun talking about CNS penetration, <laughs> but uh Jill, go ahead. Yeah, so I want to put the caveat in there that CNS penetration's not studied in our AML patient. Like the data that we're saying like, oh, Aluda might have CNS, but it's not from AML patients. It's literally from glioma patients Uh that were studied. um, And they looked at CNS concentrations of only two patients in this study. So it's not, you can't go home and say Aluda penetrates the CNS, (laughs) you're going with CNS involvement, let's give Aluda. It's just like, "Hmm, there might be something there. Let's look at this in the future. Um, Love it. I love and, it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I, 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 I was just going to say, Bernie, I, I read this like very complicated um, discovery paper of how they designed Olu. Mm-hmm. And um, like they literally moved around side chains to try to make it more CNS penetrate, more like lipophilic and whatnot. So uh, to me, I was really sold, but I'm not, you guys clearly are not sold. So I, I don't know where to, to, to put the point yet. So Bernie, you're the tiebreaker. <laughs> well, as you know, sort of my other passion is CNS penetration of targeted therapies. And it's what a lot of my research is. And I think the problem with comparing drugs in these, these different classes is they study them differently. So like Ola has like a two patient, you know, report and then there's a rodent model that shows like 40% gets in, which is great. Um, there's some studies showing, you know, possibly even higher penetration. And then you've got IVO, which, you know, there's some some other in vitro studies showing, you know, 16% CNS penetration, some showing 4% penetration, but they're all different studies, right? And at the end of the day, it probably doesn't matter if it's anywhere from, you know, four to 20%, as long as whatever is getting in is significantly above the IC50 based on how potent these targeted therapies are and what types of concentrations and Cmaxes you're seeing in patients, both are likely to be effective. And if you look at the glioma data, they're both similarly effective and both have like window of opportunity studies showing the drug gets there and it shows 2HG inhibition. So the drugs get to the brain and they do their job. I'm not sure there's a clinically relevant difference here. you know. 
if you want to compare apples to apples, we need to do that study. So maybe one of the companies can give me money and we'll do it at the PK <laughs> Core. I'm here for it. And I'll tell people for sure. And it, at the end of the day, it'll be like, both get enough penetration to be effective. Um, yeah. But I don't, but yeah. could that alone clear a CNS? Probably not. You probably, probably not. Yeah. do punctures. Yeah, I guess the one thing going for Aluda, when we're purely thinking about this, probably the most important thing for targeted therapy, CNS penetration, besides being small, uh, lipophilic, and not protein-bound, which they're all very similar in those three categories, mm -hmm. um, it is not a BCRP substrate, and it inhibits both PGP and BCRP, which those efflux transporters are the most important characteristic for determining CNS penetration of these oral TKIs. And staying yeah. in the CNS. And staying in the CNS. So, so, so I, I mean, I'm, 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 I'm befuddled here, Bernie, every characteristic that you're describing is, is leading me to believe and all the, like the, the science behind it is leading me to believe that Olu might be better CNS penetrant, but you're, I'm getting mixed signals from you guys. You're, you're saying maybe I, clinically, it doesn't freaking matter. Clinically irrelevant. Clinically irrelevant. We don't know. So do the study and well, prove it. So don't know yet. Don't know. Yeah. All right. So it's a wash. We're going to zero points awarded to either category here. <laughs> All right. What about, uh, so other toxicities, differentiation syndrome, does one cause more differentiation syndrome than the other? Uh, you can't really say that because they nope. haven't really been compared <laughs> head to head. So hard to say. Um, we know that the incidence of differentiation syndrome with Aluda was about 13% and grade three was about 9%. Similar mm -hmm. numbers to ivocidinib, but I mean, you can't say one has more or less. I will tell you what is different, though, is the management per their package insert. Why? Um, so Aluda's package insert, if, if differentiation syndrome is expected, so we know the symptoms of differentiation syndrome, leukocytosis, edema, shortness of breath, portal infusion, uh, weight gain. If any of that is expected you're or seen, you're supposed to hold Aluda and then initiate the systemic corticosteroids for a minimum of three days. And then you can resume it either at the same dose or a dose reduction. That's different than any of our other differentiation syndrome drugs, such as gilteritinib, ibocinib, enosinib. With those drugs, you continue the drug unless they're having severe symptoms. And usually at our institution, severe symptoms is like grade three, usually like high flow nasal cannula or um, mm -hmm. like a non-rebreather or something like that. Um, or like hypotensive or something mm -hmm. like that. They're usually more sick. Mm -hmm. But you continue the drug throughout and you just give them the steroids continue, uh, concomitantly. Mm -hmm. um, but with Aluda, you hold it. And so it's as so soon weird. as they come in, and so sometimes you're not sure though. Yeah. When a patient comes in with like shortness of breath, elevated yeah. white count, if it's infection, like do they have a pneumonia yeah. or do they have differentiation syndrome? Mm-hmm. And so it's going to be really, you're going to be holding a yeah. maybe more than you actually need to, in my opinion. Yeah, this is just confusing. And I think it's, it's unnecessarily, not, it's unnecessary. That's a great yeah. word to, to say what the situation, completely unnecessary. Yeah. Cause that, the half-life of these drugs is, yeah, is like three days, right? Two, three days. Yeah. Like guilt is even longer. Holding it is just futile. <laughs> unless it's severe, right? So, right. Like, yeah. yeah, like yeah. unless like, I physically can't get a pill down them because yeah. they're intubated. Yeah. Then... Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I, I would ignore that. I mean... <laughs> We're not and giving I medical would, advice on this podcast, but Anthony, no, we, we are ignore not. that. No, no, no. It's no <laughs> this is for entertainment purposes only. It's going to confuse people oh, who are managing sure. um, differentiation syndrome in these patients. Yeah. 100%. Well we, we always need... Um, we need to keep things consistent and we need to keep things standard and having something different is, is not good. So we're going to standardize this and treat all differentiation syndrome, you know, essentially the same. All right. So, so that's no, differentiation no points, syndrome. No points for that. No, sorry. Minus maybe like, maybe minus points. Olu. Minus, Come minus on, Olu. 0.5. I don't even know. For uh, healthcare plus provider points. confusion. Yes. <laughs> oh, I love it. Um, so other toxicities, hepatotoxicity, is this more or less with Olu? Oh, it's more. Yeah. So Olu, there's... he's supposed to be a friendly snowman. What the hell? Yeah, he's not. He's got liver problem. He drinks he's, a lot. He's a <laughs> <laughs> uh, So yeah, so we have grade, like grade three hepatotoxicity in about 16% uh, of patients. 
on the monotherapy that was seen in like the phase one um, study. The phase two is not out like published yet, so we don't really know, but we're guessing it's going to be around 16% grade three. These were all, wow. yeah, one patient on the phase two actually uh, died because of liver toxicity. Um, so it is a very serious side effect and something that we need to monitor. There are patients that have successfully been taken, like held the therapy, dose reduced, and then resumed at like uh, once daily dosing and they were fine. So it is manageable. Um, but it's something you need to monitor in the labs. And if you have a patient with like a history of cirrhosis, maybe this mm -hmm. is not the drug you want to give them. All right. One minus well, one point for minus Olu. Minus one for Olu, the drunk snowman. <laughs> <laughs> I think, I don't know what the tally is. I lost count, but I think we're yeah. at least minus two or three here. For, Your scoring system is whack. It is. Yeah. <laughs> we started uh, by okay. adding positive points. <laughs> We're going to oh, add no. positives, I promise. Yeah, we okay. will. We will. Okay. Uh, drug interact. So, this will be like, unless you guys can think of other drug characteristics we should compare and contrast. Um, I think this is the last one drug interactions. Yeah. More or less. So, I would say same. It's yeah. actually a bit better, um, in my opinion. So, it goes through the CYP3A4. It's a, it's a substrate for CYP3A4, and it's yeah. also inducer of CYP3A4. Both of these are true for IVO. Yep. The difference in the drug interactions is that they actually studied strong CYP3-4 inhibitors with mm -hmm. Aluda, and they say that it's fine. There's no change in the AUC of the drug. So if I, you're thinking... I call yeah. bullshit. There's this no way. How, how in the world? There is no drugs on the human planet <laughs> that that is a substrate of CYP3-A4 but is not affected by a strong CYP3-A4 inhibitor. That just... That just doesn't make sense. That's They're, oxymoronic. I it didn't make sense to me, and I I started, and I was like confused. I, and yeah. then, so Bernie, I mean, you got some theories. I can see your noggin moving. No, I I think it doesn't make sense. What doesn't make sense to me is that it's significantly affected by inducers, but not significantly yeah. affected by inhibitors. Right? And to me, that that might speak to you know what was the sample size in this drug interaction study. Is there just a huge variability in PK, which they do? I think they do say that in the paper. And honestly, that's true of like every TKI, right? Like the, yeah. the variability is huge. And so also you wonder like if it probably depends on what 3 or 4 inhibitor they chose. Like if they chose a 3 or 4 inhibitor that is metabolized by 3A4, then its metabolism is induced. Induced, so like yep. You choose ketoconazole or something. You've already revved up 3A4 because you're on Olu, the drunk snowman. Yep. <laughs> and you've revved up your SIP enzymes. And now you're giving homeopathic doses of ketoconazole or, or ITRA or whatever you're doing, right? And then yep. you're not giving enough to inhibit the drug. And so you're not actually assessing inhibition. I don't know. It'd be really, I need to see the details I agree. before I make yeah. a definitive conclusion. I wasn't yeah. able to find any PKPD data anywhere it's not published the package insert just gives a line that says there's no clinically significant drug interactions like okay but show me the data <laughs> i don't know so i guess the question is though like we typically put anti-mold prophylaxis on all of our patients we live in miami it's hot humid mold everywhere so <laughs> i'm not kidding it's bad um so the question is like are you going to put an azole on with these patients I have no mm -hmm. idea. I yeah. think, you know, the, the azole that I would choose is probably posiconazole because it's glucuronidated and not, it won't be induced, right? Vori is going to be induced. Mm -hmm. um, You're not going to see hepatotoxicity with posa, so you're right. in good shape. Yep, yep. And the only question is, is posa, because it's going to have good concentrations and be a strong SIP inhibitor, is it going to raise Olu's concentrations? I think it's going to, and it'd be interesting to see that sort of PK um, study done, not with, you know, ITRA or whatever they used. Yeah. And then how many patients on this trial were on? POSA. POSA. Yeah. It'd yeah, be good to know. Good question. Yeah. What did you do, uh, Jill? So you were, you were a part of this trial. What did, what, what did you do? Were you? It was my time, to be perfectly honest. <laughs> oh, okay. okay. When they were enrolling patients. A lot of patients are just continued on therapy, which we'll talk about yeah. later. But we do uh -huh. see some people where, you know, in, in our case, we don't usually put these patients on IDH inhibitors on azoles unless they True. True. truly need to, right? 
um, because it's not going to induce more cytopenias as a, as a monotherapy. You're just going to see an increase in counts over time, hopefully. Yep. Yep. It just depends on if their disease has caused severe, profound neutropenia and how long it, it, we'll talk about how long this drug takes to work, but it could take, you know, two, three, four months before the neutropenia resolves. So tricky. So if it's yeah. a wash from all these key characteristics, we should probably talk about the data now, right? Perfect. Yeah, I love let's it. Let's get into it. The phase two data that came out um, for the AML patients in the relapse refractory setting was published at ASH in 2022. This had 156 patients in it. Um, these patients could have been on previous VEN therapy, um, which not many of the patients were on VEN therapy, because if you think about the time that they were enrolling patients in this trial, it was like simultaneous like VEN coming out. Um, but I think it was about 10% of patients were on venenoclax. Um, and so the median age was 71, which is very typical of what you see in this patient population. They're going to be older. Um, they had about two prior regimen lines of therapy. Um, they had to have like good renal function, good hepatic function. What's funny is that the, actually this study, when we talk about like the timeline of events is like this study actually finished its data, like it's finished its enrollment four days after or four days before the FDA approved Venetica. So they got out of it right in time because then I feel like it would have been a little bit different. Mm -hmm. Um, so primary endpoints were going to be like CR, CRH. Um, which I think is a good primary endpoint, especially for like a phase two study. So you get into the, if you look at the phase two abstract, the CR, CRH um, was 35%. Um, The most important thing that we can take away from this is that the duration of response was really long for these patients. It was 25.9 months, almost 26 months um, with a confidence interval of like 10.6 to not reach like patients are still on this therapy uh, present day. Um, so a third of patients are responding. Half of those patients who don't respond, don't get any type of response, not a CRI, not a uh, partial response. Um, half of the patients don't respond and they have dismal outcomes. And it's very similar to what we see with single Asian ibocitinib. And then, so we're seeing overall response, like our median overall survival for the entire group is going to be 11.6 months. A lot of this is diluted because you have so many patients that just aren't responding at all. Um, so why does this matter? What does this take away? So like we look at the duration of response, 26 months is a really long time for these patients. Mm-hmm. So if you can get your patient on therapy and they happen to respond, they respond a really long time. And that's kind of what the takeaway is of this phase two. So Bernie, you're, um, let's say Bernie, you're Servier and you've got Ivocitinib and you're looking at this data and you're like, Holy shit, that durability is exquisite. You are probably worried, right? Yeah, I mean, I think, <laughs> but I think this is where we have to be careful. Agreed, um, yes. This is what I want to get into. Yeah, no, I agree. So I think to me, this study shows, you know, this drug produced a CR, CRH, which is a good response, right? In 35% of patients, which is good because... As we talked about at the beginning of the show, we've got crap for relapse refractory AML. So for IDH mutated patients, excellent. Is this much different than ivocidinib? Not really. You know, you see 30%. It's within, Mm -hmm. you know, the margin of of error here. But the difference is this this duration of CRCRH. And the the tough part is you have, it's really, well, it's really problematic to cross trial compare these studies because I don't think these are the same population. So even though they're both relapse refractory yep. AML, if you look at the baseline characteristics, like they're pretty different. Um, yes. And I, I, you know, if you look at like age, right, it's similar, it's older AML patients. But if you look at like um, poor cytogenetics, for example, yep. you've got like 30% in the Denaro study and like, what was it, like 17, 15%-ish? Mm-hmm. In the Ivo, in the drunk snowman Olu study, <laughs> um, so it's like double the poorest cytogenetic patients. And then if you look at patients who are relapsed versus those who are refractory, in Olu it's like sixty-five percent relapse, thirty-five percent refractory. 
And obviously take all of this with a grain of salt, right? Because we don't have the full publication, so it's hard to dissect all this info and really break it down, which is what we love doing. But if you look at the IVO data where they did kind of break this down, 69% were either refractory to induction or the most recent reinduction. So these are way more Bad. primary refractory, Bad super patients. hard to treat patients versus in the other arm, it's it's or in the other study, it's mm -hmm. it's not the same case. You look at like prior transplant, 12% in the Oluda study, 30% um, in the IVO study. Yeah. It's almost mm -hmm. double. So I don't think we should compare these head to head in terms of mm -mm. durability. In terms of response, I think they're both effective IDH inhibitors. But when looking at durability, I think the baseline patient characteristics are really important. Are you dealing with a P53 mutated primary refractory patient? You know, you get them in remission, they're not going to last very long, no matter what you do. So I don't know. I think it's hard to compare head to head. And I think it's a it's a it's a dangerous game to play. We all do it. But uh, I think I think in this setting, it's it's hard to conclude one is better than another without doing a randomized study head to head, Aluda versus you? Ivo. Yeah, which which we're never you know, gonna get. Which we're never gonna get. Yeah, but it, it, it's also hard to say what the patient population is because we don't really have the exact details in the phase two. Like we have what they incorporate in their phase ones, and but the their cytogenetics we don't really know who's how different they are in terms of risk yeah there's like a po like you can find some like poster details online where you can see some of this but it's like very top line info right like yeah they're not getting into the nitty-gritty and so the paper when it comes out will be important but i don't think these are the same populations so i, yep. I don't think we can make a huge conclusion about the the tail end of these curves it's like if you look at the tail end of the IVO curve for like survival, you're getting into ends of like, you know, five. less than ten patients. <laughs> it's like five patients. And same thing like the tail end of the, the, um, the Oluda or Olu curve yep. is like fifteen patients or something. So. Yeah, when you get that low of patients, um, the inflection points on Kaplan-Meier curves are very susceptible to large swings, right? And so that could easily just explain, obviously the baseline characteristics, but also the smaller numbers that are occurring later on in the curve can easily explain why there's such a large difference between the two studies. I think, you know, my takeaways from this are, there are patients with IDH mutations that have incredible durable responses with a single agent. The problem is we have no freaking idea who these patients are. And so you just, you started on the patient and you just hope that they're one of those patients. I'm hopeful that in the future we'll be able to describe a little bit better of who, who are these patients, right? They're probably not the patients that have complex karyotypes and P53 mutations and other, you know, weird co-mutations like Bernie was describing. Disease. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And so, so I think we still have lots to learn, but I, I, I agree with you guys. I wouldn't conclude that one is more durable than the other based off of this data, because we're comparing an apple to a freaking mango here. Um, and I, 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 the unfortunate thing is, is people are going to take this at face value and they're going to be like, Olu. Olu is so durable. We should Three use this instead better. of Ivo. Totally <laughs> <use it. laughs> oh, I just, I don't think we should conclude that. I think that's a dangerous conclusion. I think what we should conclude is we've got two great, I don't want to call them great. They're, they're, they're good options. drugs. They're good options for they elderly They have clinical AML. efficacy <laughs> in the relapse refractory setting for IDH1 mutated patients. Yes. I think it was really reassuring that, uh, Jill, you brought up um, uh, there's a proportion of patients that were treated with HMA-VAN, uh, mm -hmm. which is is real world. Um, yeah. And I think they also described that the response rates were no different. Um, exactly. That's very reassuring because that's, that's what our standard of care is. That's what we want. We want to do HMA-VAN. Uh, they're going to get almost two years of survival with that very potent uh, therapy because IDH and IDH mutated patients are exquisitely sensitive to VEN, and then guess what? They're going to get another, you know, maybe year or two or whoever. How who knows how durable this is? But like, 
think about that. That's like two to four years that a patient would have gotten 10 months with azacitidine alone. This, this is, this is great guys. So I want to highlight what you just said. So you said <laughs> yeah. they can get, you know, these responders are going to live, you know, years with single agent Olu or an IDH inhibitor. So why not give that up front, Anthony? All three? Triple, triple therapy. No, absolutely not. It'd be nice. <laughs> oh, no. We're not talking about that. <laughs> uh, I, I, think, I think your argument, what I want to say is your argument that people can respond to single agent IDH inhibitors in the relapse refractory setting and have good outcomes is the argument against when these triple therapy studies come out, which they will, yes, yes. those mm -hmm. outcomes will look better than HMA event. They probably will, right? And when right. they do, you have to remember that in those patients where you're giving HMA event, you can then give them an IDH inhibitor and probably achieve similar long-term survival without giving people three drugs at once. Mm -hmm. And I want people to remember that when those studies come out, <laughs> but no one will. No, this will be the this is this is this will be what we take home today. <laughs> okay, I like it. <laughs> um, the other thing I kind of want to talk about is speaking yeah. of what to use next is yeah. this was not studied with IvoAza frontline. So if you're mm -hmm. an institution doing yeah. IvoAza frontline and you have some really fast turnaround time on NGS that I don't know about, <laughs> um, then we really don't know like if you add a Luda after Ivo Aza, if it's going to help or if you're going to see the same types of response that they're getting from the phase two. Yeah. Um, so that's a caveat. So this is really only, you're only, you can really only apply this to like patients that maybe got Ben Aza and like those patients that got intensive chemotherapy, no mm -hmm. IDH inhibitor yep. in, the, in the front line. They do have studies coming out. I think in the future, that'll be like, um, Aluda after IDH1 inhibitors, which will be interesting to read. But for right now, I don't, yeah. I would not consider that in that setting. So well said, Jill. Completely it. agree. It's, uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's worrisome that uh, you're burning a line of therapy uh, potentially uh, by using uh, an IDH with HMA up front. Um, so I, I, I think that message needs to be heard loud and clear. So I'm glad you brought it up, Jill. Yeah. So at the end of the day, we've got two drugs that are effective in the in the relapse refractory setting. So w what are our takeaways? Like, what are we going to do going forward? Like, what is our clinical practice going to be? I really think you have it comes down to the patient. Mm -hmm. Like, I'm a huge patient advocate, and you have to mm -hmm. look like your patient. Can they take twice a day? Do they have a history of cirrhosis? Are they mm -hmm. on psychiatric medications? Um, mm -hmm. have they had previous IDH1 inhibition? Like, I don't know, all these kinds of things you have to play and decide right then in clinic, like, oh, I think this is a better drug. I don't think one is better than the other right now. Mm -hmm. Um, I think they're both probably equal. Mm -hmm. Um, and it really just comes down to your patient. Mm -hmm. Jill, what about cost? So we, we've we've kind oh. of come down to the conclusion that, you know, there's differences in safety, efficacy, we don't know, but right now we can only say that they're probably equal. So then like after safety and efficacy comes cost. Now you've got a, a second IDH inhibitor, a Me Too drug that's coming to market. Like in theory, shouldn't it be like significantly cheaper so that, you know, people would actually choose it? It's not. And honestly, when I first looked <laughs> oh, no. this up, when I looked this up, I got a little glimmer of hope because I was like, oh, this is only 16, only, only $16,000 a month. Uh, and then you realized it was twice a day. And then I was like, <laughs> and it comes packages 30. So they really set me up for failure. Oh, no. Oh, no. <laughs> like, whoever did their packaging, like, needs to go back and give us 60, a 60 tap of vial because. Yep. It's twice a day. So it comes out to 32,200-ish. Oh my and God. Then, a um, month, $32,000 a month. Yeah. It's, it's insane. And then I vote 32,188. So it's about $22 yeah. more expensive. Yeah. How much is uh, Venetoclax? Um, so actually, fun fact, you yep. know how like inflation is happening and like everything's more expensive. Like eggs down here is like $9.99 a carton. Dude, you got to shop at Costco. I have, would have to drive. My method of transportation is a bike. 
<laughs> okay, fair. <laughs> That's fair. <laughs> um, but the Nataplex was hit by inflation. It used to be like $101 a tablet. Now it's $127 a tablet. So depending on your dosing, if you're doing 100 milligrams a month or 400, you're ranging between like on the cheap side, about 3500 to $14,000 a month. That's a big range. Yeah, it depends on your dosing. Cause it depends on your dosing. So if you use Azol Plus, uh, the 100 milligram, it's you're about looking 4, at... You save money. Yeah, yeah that's, you save that's, money. That's like a tenth, one-tenth of the cost of an IDH inhibitor, right? If yeah. I'm doing my math right, 40,000 exactly. essentially versus 4,000. Implications 30, for versus 3,000. <laughs> yeah. yeah, like we're not really... I mean, maybe you're using Ven in the relapse setting, but... Yeah, probably no. not. Yeah, right. That's what I'm getting at. The front line. Why why would you use a $35,000 medication when you could just pay $3,500? Mm-hmm. <sighs> Craziness. All right. So that's the cost. Um, sorry, I went on a tangent there, but I figured we, we probably should talk about the cost because it's insane. The other uh, thing... The, the, you know, the challenge with cost, though, guys, is they they can't really come in at a lower cost because, you know... Most people don't want costs to be lower. Why? Because your specialty pharmacy is not going to make more money. Why would you, if you're getting 6% profit on a $30,000 medication versus 6% profit on a $3,000 medication, of course you're going to go after the $30,000 medication. Our our system is completely effed Broken. up. I don't want to say the word because then Bernie's going to have to put explicit on our podcast, we but it, it's, it's a terrible... To. Right. I mean, there's a Philly girl on this podcast. The fact that it's not already explicit. <laughs> Good point. Uh, so, so yeah. I mean, they they're stuck. They have to. They have to. They have to price it at the same thing because nobody's nobody's going to want it because they're not going to make profit. It's sad. 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 Sad system we have. Speaking yeah. like a true Canadian. I know, right? <laughs> uh, don't get me on our public health care system in Canada, though. <laughs> Sorry, we have a, a brand new attending on service. He's Italian. So amazing. Whoa. And he's like Molto very bene. He's very confused about the like, health care system in America. Like, I have to explain this. He's like, so this patient has insurance, but is homeless? I'm like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's America. That's America. You have commercial insurance, but you are homeless. Oh. The oh. only other topic I really do want to bring up, though, is yeah. like, um, so talking kind of about, about differentiation syndrome and like mm-hmm. the duration of the response on, of Aluda versus Ivo. If you look back at like when Ivo was studied, we probably weren't as comfortable with managing differentiation mm-hmm. syndrome. Good point. Mm, yeah. And so I wonder how many patients got pulled off trial because of like toxicity or mm-hmm. or whatever it may be, like for. Uh, investigator decision mm-hmm. yep they get pulled off trial because they didn't know how to manage differentiation syndrome now like three four years later mm-hmm. we're kind of a pro we're good at it yeah yeah so that could be another reason that the duration of response is longer again we don't know mm-hmm. that and i'm yeah. just like thinking that's a good that's a good such point. a good point yep excellent you know what the last point before we close out here that i want to talk about is is uh the the time to response like how do we how do we use these drugs in real life right like because normally okay three and seven you know by day 28 you're doing a remission marrow right um hma van we've kind of figured it out a little bit um but these drugs like okay patient hasn't responded in a month what do you do continue it okay patient still is not really responding but their hemoglobin kind of looks better what do you do like like how do we how do we use these drugs in real life do we just continue and continue them at what point do we say oh this drug is not working yeah this is tough i think both like if you look at ivo time to any you know initial response is like two months it's like 1.9 months and time to crcrh with olu is the same 1.9 months in the phase one, two, it was really weird. Like some of the time responses are a lot longer. So again, maybe that's a different population, maybe closer to the IVO studies. Hard, hard to say. It's such a small N. But I think that's, I think the reason why these studies are hard to extrapolate to clinical practice is in clinical practice, if you have a sick patient and you can't wait three months or two months to see a response, like these aren't the patients in these studies. These are patients with 
fairly okay counts where they can chill with, you know, whatever leukemia they have for two to three yeah. months waiting for a response. And mm -hmm. I think it does inflate your outcomes a little bit in these studies compared to what we see in clinical practice. Mm -hmm. I, I don't. I, I think giving it for a month and seeing what happens is, is, is reasonable. Sometimes in these cases, if patients start to get really sick, that's when we'll start to do things like flag chemotherapy and just continue mm -hmm. the IDH through it and say, yeah. you know, I don't, I, we can't wait any longer. Like this patient yep. needs a response. They feel like crap. Their quality of life is poor because of transfusions, which do get better over time if you are responding. But if you're not, they ain't getting better. Mm -hmm. And then you just pull the trigger. But then the question is, did you, is your drug working now? Do you need to continue right. it forever? Right. Like <laughs> it's not it's tough. Great. Yeah, this is a tricky situation, this is a especially real challenge, especially when what sixty to seventy percent of patients are not going to have any clinical benefit response to these therapies, yeah. right? And so, it's tricky. Uh, we got lots to learn with these drugs. Yeah, and maybe maybe we'll have biomarkers and markers yeah. of response in the future that will help us. But that'd be cool. Yeah. All right, guys. So what are the take-home points for the audience here today? Uh, one, call it Olu, <laughs> the fat snowman. The fat, drunk snowman. <laughs> How is he fat? Oh, I guess he's fat. He's kind of skinny. I, don't know. I swear to God, if whoever the company is that like markets this as as a, a, a nice snowman, I, I will love you forever. I will, you know, we I will advocate for this drug forever. <laughs> that would be amazing. So Olu. So take home points yeah. for Olu. Olu is going to be, it's an option for your patients in the relapse refractory setting. A third of them are going to respond. It's pro, it's potential that if they do respond, they may respond for a really long time. Um, and basically, we don't know if it's better than Ivo. Mm -hmm. Perfectly well agree. said. Like think it. about your patient. That's all think I have to Think about say. your I'm patient. The biggest patient advocate out there. So think about your patient and what works best for them. Yeah. And my takeaway Perfect. is we have to be careful interpreting these single arm phase two studies and comparing apples to oranges. And we really need randomized trials and not keep doing these single arm phase two studies, especially with things like triplet therapy. Yeah. Completely agree. Trip, yes. And the future for triple therapy needs to be compared to something. Something useful. <laughs> Single Asian azacytic. <laughs> Agreed. Oh, this was great. Thank you, Jill, this for coming fun. on. This Thanks, was guys. a lot of fun. I learned a ton. This was awesome. Thank you for having me. It's always a pleasure hearing your guys' podcast. I probably won't listen to this one because I don't want to listen to it. <laughs> That's okay. <laughs>